Yeah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm, um, I'm super curious. What I think peaked this whole thing for me is that you said you breastfed for 10 years. And I think that that is amazing and insane. And, um, <laughs> those I, are two good words to describe it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so then I started, uh, you know, trying to dig a little deeper and research and see what else I could find. Um, so yeah, so you're a doctor. Um, and I don't know if you're a doctor in a very specific thing or so, um, yeah, explain. Yeah. So I have a doctor of psychology. I, I see patients in, you know, right now in my home and private practice and, um, and so I specialize in longer term psychotherapy. Okay. And, um, I saw that you, um, deal with a few different specific things or like essentially life management. Is that a way to kind of summarize or what is like, what are the very, like, cause I mean, for example, and we kind of mentioned this. So my aunt also, um, has, I think a similar degree, like she can write prescriptions and she's, um, a psych, she was a psychologist for a long time. Or maybe so if she can write prescriptions, she's a psychiatrist okay. and has a medical degree. So I don't have a medical degree. I always pursued the specifically clinical psychology track. Okay. Um, is work, working in, I mean, clinical psychology is itself a very broad field. Yeah. Um, you can, but I do practice without prescription. Um, and psychotherapy and psychoanalysis is focused more on longer term therapies, especially which even without being longer term, what it assumes, first of all, is we have a conscious mind and management skills mm -hmm. and intentions and ego. Okay. But in addition to that, we have an unconscious mind and we are affected by things that we wish we weren't affected by, okay. um, <laughs> you know, things that we've repressed, things that we never knew, um, things that come up by way of dreams or by way of, you know, surges of emotion, whether they be anger or excitement or, you know, all manner of things, but that aren't, you know, there's this, this tandem relationship between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. And so the kind of practice I do is, is a modern version of psychoanalysis um, in, in which we work with both of those forces. And so I guess I wouldn't say it's management as much as um, kind of like an, an active discovery uh, in, got it. in working with the psyche. Mm -hmm. And it's a much more holistic approach, mm -hmm. which yeah. is amazing because it's like, as we know, there's a pandemic going on now, but there's a pandemic that's been going on with, you know, drugs and overuse of all these things. So it's like, why, why take that route when you could really just do it in a holistic way? And do, because it almost seems like, especially now that like I have a kid and I'm, kind of an adult or you know whatever like there are so many things that truly have been repressed like just pressed away and shoved in a closet and pushed and you know you just keep going through life and it's like a lot of times people just don't just deal with what's at hand or what happened when they were a kid or um my point with this is that I'm realizing that there's so many um and I think it's everyone has some sort of parent issues Right. Because mm -hmm. now that I'm a parent, I'm realizing that it's tough. 
and my little one's tiny. And I'm so glad I'm so glad you're saying that because you know one of the real misconceptions about any kind of therapy that that brings in issues of parenting and childhood is I think initially can be seen as like blaming and it's not about blaming it's sort of we all even when we have the best of parents and the best of intentions life is complex and life is limited you know every time you have something you don't have something else and that's okay that's the way it should be I mean we're we're not meant to have everything but if we don't deal with that we kind of anticipate that we should be able to have everything Mm -hmm. and so a lot a lot of what therapy is is also reckoning with what has been and what hasn't been and sort of who you are in the mix of all of that but I think you're saying something more specific about parenting and absolutely um it, it it really becoming a parent throws you necessarily into your experiences as a child mm-hmm. and you know <laughs> what your limitations are when you're like I don't have any resources <laughs> or why am I so angry or <laughs> why don't I have <laughs> patience for this yeah exactly yeah. Right. Or even you're the most amazing thing in the world and all of my energy has to go into my child instead of anything else. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah. Well, and that with that, it's like, and this is something now that I've been speaking with so many more moms, all you, and as a new mom, and I'm sure, and you have a couple of kids, like it happens with each kid each time. And, you know, as they get a little older, I'm sure that it gets a little easier to just kind of let them be independent. But when they're little, it's like all your time, all your energy is going to that kid and you still have a husband and parents and siblings and friends and, you know, other people that, and a dog that want your attention. And it's like, you know, you could, and a job or a career or whatever it is. And, you know, you really do become spread thin. And I don't think that women anticipate it and men don't understand because they're the one, everyone's just pulling and I think that it's a really interesting, um, because all women go through it right. and no men go through it because they're not, even if they're the ones at home, they're not the ones that the kid came out of, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Right. And all of the other things that are tied to that, the hormonal components yeah. and the, the sort of cultural and psychological lineage that's carried through women. Um, so yeah, so I want to know about your breastfeeding journey. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, when I, something that I often forget is that when, when my first child was born, I have three kids, when my first son was born, um, he was born with some complications where actually we weren't able to nurse in the beginning because he he had to be in the NICU. Um, so I was pumping from the very beginning. He had a hard time latching even in those moments where we were able to try and breastfeed. Um, and it was so painful. <laughs> and um, I thought that it was impossible. I used, you know, breast shields, which who knew those were a thing. And <laughs> crazy. now we know. And um, yeah. And I think, so he was in the hospital for 10 days. Most of those were um, where he was in the NICU and I was sleeping in a closet somewhere mm-hmm. where they supplied me with a pump, which was, you know, very good because, or, or at a certain point I could run to him and um, actually nurse him in person. Um, 
so that then, you know, my milk was in and we, and we had established that when he came, but I think that it began with the difficulty of our relationship and sort of anticipating that he was fine. I mean, it was a perfectly fine pregnancy. Um, the labor was really long, um, but I didn't anticipate that there would be any difficulty. And so it's hit with this, like this real trauma of my child could have died and what is going on. I think I never wanted to let him go. Um, and then, you know, he loved breastfeeding and I, I came into my body. Like I didn't have a real, I've watched some of your other podcasts and, and, you know, like athletes and you, the way I think some people relate to their body in a very like primary way. I didn't have that at all until I had really until I had my first child and I started breastfeeding. So that's kind of the background of like, it became like, I came into myself and like the fact that these breasts are like really useful and something to be proud of. Um, and like, I don't care who sees, I did care for a while. Um, did the whole breastfeeding in the bathroom thing with shame, got over that, said, like, that's your all problem. Um, and then, you know, it, it was such a part of my identity and like, kind of I joined the Leche League, but the friends that I had as mothers came from there. Um, and it really was a, a strengthening thing for me. And I want to emphasize that because now in hindsight, I see that, you know, where like the Leche League and a kind of um, return to attachment parenting and a kind of very attached embodied mothering can be difficult and and hurtful for a lot of people not an option for a lot of people um and i see those things now but it's not something i ever experienced it was quite the opposite for me um and so yeah like it i didn't want to stop and my my child didn't want to stop and i don't remember what happened in those first couple of years um <laughs> and it, it you know, anytime I sort of thought, is this going to stop? I'll wet, wait and let him, you know, guide that weaning process. And he never did. And then I got pregnant again. Um, and, you know, you can tandem nurse. You can nurse through pregnancy. And I did those things. Um, That's so, I, you know, it's crazy because they say that when you're breastfeeding, you can't get pregnant. Like it's part of, because you. It is a kind of natural <laughs> birth control, especially for the first year. Um, I mean, like, you know, like, especially if you've pumped, you can see the quality of your milk changing. The fat content goes down the older your baby gets. And mm. I think it has something to do with the fat content of what your body produces in milk that once that goes down, um, then your body's no longer suppressing the pregnancy hormones. And that happens usually around a year. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um. but it is definitely some form of birth control in the beginning. Okay. Yeah. Cause I've heard, I've heard of women who say, yeah, no, they, they haven't gotten pregnant. It's no issue. And then I've also heard of women who say, no, we've, we're, we're pregnant again and it's an issue. So it's yeah. very, it's interesting to hear. Okay. So that makes sense. The fat content. Um, mm -hmm. how long did it take for you to kind of, um, get comfortable with the breastfeeding? <clears throat> like, and I mean in public or like, you know, being shamed or feeling shameful, verse yeah. um 
I would say probably four months. And so much of that does come from your personal background. I think, um, you know, I went, like I, I was working in a counseling center and it was the end of the year and we all went out for like a dinner and I brought my son and he was a couple of months old. And I mean, these are amazing people. These were my colleagues who really, you know, also, some also had children who really cared about me and, um, I just, I know I had the idea that it was unacceptable to nurse in public, certainly around your colleagues or at the dinner table. Um, <laughs> and so I remember going to the bathroom in like this tiny little stall, <laughs> sitting on the toilet seat and, and nursing. And um, it wasn't brought on by any of those people there. And then when I, I, I moved um, back to my home state, I was like around my family more and, you know, certainly like bodies are things that you cover up. Um, right. and I, I started like, because I was on the couch at home, different hours of the day, I started being like, I don't care. And, 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 <laughs> you know, this is what my son means. And, and then would get sort of comments of like, Oh, that's interesting. No, you never like since when do you show your breasts? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that it, it it was it just it took a while. And I think, you know, I would definitely say to, to any mom out there who you know, I hope they don't, but I know that it's probably not true. If anyone who feels shame about showing their breasts or breastfeeding in public, um, that's you know, that's one of the the things that they're there for and that shame it really comes from someone else and mm -hmm. um, you know please be welcome to do it yeah it's weird right like for whatever reason women feel not all but they and we we do I felt that when I was breastfeeding like I would go we'd be having a picnic and I'd go to the car and sit in the back seat mm -hmm. and like we'd be with a couple who has she had a set of twins and like Another, like they have kids, so she knew how it worked. Like I'm thinking about one specific incident and I still, like it had nothing to do with them and it is all just internal. But I think that it's so interesting because even when you are really comfortable with your body, you still feel like, well, I don't want to make anyone else uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I think that that's what it is, but there is, the, the, you turn into a walking milk machine. It, I don't even think of them as boobs anymore or breasts. Like it's just, mm -hmm. they just milk when they, they would just leak when she would cry. They have a mind of their own for sure. Yeah. You know, like, and they, they get a baby within like five feet of it. Yeah, totally. So it's, it's like, there's a time period where they're not even boobs or sexual or nothing. They're just truly just. But how much do you think food. it's the, it's the, separating the maternal body and the sexual body that is does kind of feel like a social mandate of well it's hard and it's this is something that I constantly think about and I talk about because and now that Axel's a little bit older it's a little easier but definitely the for the first few months as a female it's very difficult or nearly impossible to separate sexuality motherhood you know as an individual who are you and mm -hmm. how do you distinguish? Mm -hmm. Well, I guess, you know, for me, I think that's important almost not to distinguish it. You know, I mean, there's different 
times for different things. But, but what I mean about that mandate is almost like, you know, you're sexy until you're a mother or you're a sexual woman unless you're a mothering woman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course we know that's not true. <laughs> like we're, we're, we're more of each because we're both. That's, that's how I think. And, 100%. but I think that that, you know, even regardless of the shame that I had from, you know, my body in general, that there is a kind of cultural, like, we don't want to see that. We want to see you as a sexual body and, or not at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, that's, and that's why it's so funny is because like, I truly, and I, I say this in my intro, which is, I think what catches so many people is like, Everyone wants to see your boobs until you're breastfeeding. And it's so true. And it's like, <laughs> but also to your point, I think that I've spoken with so many women that once they become pregnant, they just, something falls in place and they feel the most empowered, the most sexy, the most feminine, the most woman mm -hmm. that they ever felt when they're pregnant. And it's amazing because it's like, there's no, there's no reason you shouldn't feel that way. Like you should always be comfortable in your body, but if this is something that makes it click, then good. Like this is something that, you know, it is so empowering. And for whatever reason, I don't, unless, unless you've been there, I think that it's really hard to understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that really became true for me in giving birth. Like it's, it's definitely already true in walking around with this baby inside of you that I mean it's, it's this whole process that's working without your intention anyway um but then giving birth and I had three natural childbirths they like you know of course there's these moments of this isn't possible and <laughs> like, this is just not possible someone else if somebody else wants to step in here and do this go right ahead or just like when it's not happening it's and it's then, a wild thing but then like of course nobody else does it like I did that and my you know I and my child together like we were the ones who did that and and I think it's it's that and all of the ways in which that happens in pregnancy and in breastfeeding is like is the most empowering thing in the world because it's like nobody can say what my body can and can't do because my body's doing it. Exactly. It's not up to anyone else. Exactly. Um, okay. So I am, and I think you probably know this about me at this point, because we've talked a lot outside this. I'm super bouncy. So I'll go way over here and then I might not come back over here. So I'm trying to get better at this. So yeah, me too. We always come back. So that's great. Where are we coming back to? We're going back to the breastfeeding. Yes. So you were breastfeeding. Um, and then you got pregnant and then. Yeah. So my son was not ready to stop breastfeeding and, you know, I thought he didn't choose to have a sibling. So like, why not? Let's keep going. And it was also painful because you don't produce as much milk and your, I mean, your breasts are tender in pregnancy anyway. So like, yeah, that was at times painful, but only so much, you know, I wouldn't have endured it if it was just painful. It was also like, it was really, really special to be able to feel still close to him while I was feeling this. Creating you know, another human. 
another developing baby. Yeah. And I think for me, that's also really important about being a mother is like where so much of the rest of the world is about competition, you know, especially to have more than one child is like, how in the world do you all get along? And I don't have favorites. And, you know, now they're nearly teenagers and they probably wouldn't say they get along all that well, but I think they do. And like, it's, it's, there's room. I mean, there's at least two boobs, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, when, when my second child was born, we didn't stay in the hospital even one night. Um, she was wow. born in the hospital, but we, she came home right away so quick. Um, and from there we, you know, they, they, they got to nurse even at the same time together. We had a special chair. It was like, um, one of my favorite things. And, and then there's three years gap between my second and third <clears throat> children. And so we, we did sort of the same thing, but my son, gosh, I'm sorry. I don't even remember how he, <laughs> he weaned. I think at some point the timing might be that I got pregnant with my third kid and I was like, okay, don't have three boobs. <laughs> I'm going to have to work this one out. <laughs> but so he was like four and a half when he weaned um and I'm certain I do know I did that like he was never going to do it um (laughs) you're like sorry buddy yeah yeah but it's been a good ride we'll keep going in other ways and sure enough yeah he really got into drawing he would draw for like four hours a day then (laughs) helpful tips yeah um so, but then he, then, then in sort of a, a fairness, they all, they all, um, weaned at the same age. Um, but at, when I, when I had my third child, she, um, I also, the age, the age gap changed and I, I don't know, I might've even been nursing both of them still, um, or I might've weaned my second, but I had, I had a lot of milk. Um, and so I also was donating milk. I think I, I don't know how I found out about this in a hospital I was in. You were um, in Brooklyn? No, I was living in Ohio. Okay. At that um, but you can donate milk or you can actually sell your milk to, um, for-profit milk banks. Um, and, I ended up doing that for a while, which is really, you know, this was in a, um, I think that this, they collect the milk and it usually goes to a national milk bank and then they disperse it to children, like children in the NICU or with other kinds of like really strong needs for, um, when, when, you know, other, their own mother's milk isn't available to them. But I also, in my community, there was a, a lesbian couple who just adopted a baby and, like, so I ended up giving most of my extra milk to them. And that was amazing because I got to see the baby. I get to hold the baby. Um, and yeah, that w- those were like, I mean, I can smell it now, you know, <laughs> and, and I kind of love it. It's, um, those are just really, I think, special years that it is. It's, uh, have you heard of this where, parents and I need to do a little more research into it I mean I want to actually um speak with a lactation consultant about this because they would probably know 
all the little details. But apparently, even if a woman doesn't give birth to the baby, like these uh, women who adopted the baby, they can still breastfeed. Uh, have you heard about this? I don't know much about it, but I have heard about it, that it is possible, like... To produce um, milk, even if you didn't, which is incredible. Yeah. yeah, and I don't know how how common it is to be able to do that. Yeah. But, yeah. Why? Our bodies are absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, and so... And probably bring something up about, like other aspects of attachment to children that aren't your biological children. I'm well, I'm sure that it just somehow creates some sort of straight, like a stronger bond or, I mean, mm -hmm. because there's, I mean, and you would know, but from my understanding, there's a lot of benefits aside from just immune support with Absolutely. breastfeeding. So I'm sure that all these things also tie into when a baby's adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Wow. So it, 10 years, it could have, was it, it was more than 10 years. Well, actually, because my, and it might've been like slightly under 10 years. Oh, it's a long time. My, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But my, my middle, I mean, my youngest child is five years younger than her brother. So it was like, she ended at four and a half. It's we've got nine and a half years there. Ten, round ten. I it's in the tenth year. And actually, I had already separated from their father before my youngest. When my youngest was like, um, and around three, um, and so and we were splitting custody. So I was still nursing her when she wasn't even sleeping with in my house every night. Wow. Um, and that was like honestly one of the hardest things about it i mean not being with them all together was really yeah, but. hard um but you know she still wanted it she powered through it we we're you know nursing on park benches um that is awesome though yeah i think that also sort of was a testament to me to just how that was a part of our bond and it was like she was fine to be without me and i mean you know again with the whole like you have the things you have and you don't have the things you don't have she wasn't in the, you know there's there's loss there but she was fine and she was also really happy to be with me that we could share that and that's so nice um how does that and you would just pump i guess like when you weren't together actually by then i wasn't because what well, maybe in the yeah because at that point it's like it really was more about the after two years, you know, like World Health Organization says that and that mothers should breastfeed or until around two, that that's it's a health benefit for sure for that long. Um, and after after that, like the milk supply, it's sort of like there yeah. or not there. And so I wasn't pumping, um, not when when she wasn't living with me every night, but I just, I, I thought if I have it, I have it. And if I don't, it'll be okay. Yeah. And I, I still had it. Something that a lot of women talk about with breastfeeding. And I don't, I don't think it's so, it doesn't apply. I think each case is different case by case scenario, but Absolutely. a lot of the women who um, I know who are athletes, 
as long as they're, and I don't, I'm, that's why I'm, I want to give an example. And I'm curious about your situation because women who I know who are athletes, as long as they keep their um, nutrition at a certain level, they can still be very lean, um, but produce breast milk. So like, if you look at them, they're like ripped and you wouldn't think that they could produce breast milk because a lot of times, like, and I remember hearing it that, you know, you have to be a little on the, you know, not overweight, but like chubby side and you have to be able to, you know, have all this extra fat. And I don't think that that's necessarily true. And I don't know if it's because of why, um, because the more that I dug into it when I was breastfeeding about, um, basically, you know, your like my boobs weren't necessarily bigger. They just had more fatty glands that were producing more milk. Um, mm-hmm. so there's like this misconception that, that you have to be big or whatever were you weren't, or you were, um, I was a little bit on the bigger side. Um, and I, <laughs> but I, I think, and actually I think that I, be, I absolutely became healthier because of being pregnant and postpartum, um, just like having to focus on what, I mean, my, my hormones regulated themselves a lot more naturally because they were regulating someone else's, right. uh, being prepared to do that. And, um, but yeah, I was probably <clears throat> like heavy average or a little bit like on the unhealthy side. Um, but I don't think that that had anything to do with my ability to produce milk. Um, and that was more with my first pregnancy and then it, it changed more over time. Um, so yeah. And I, I, I don't think that it has anything to do with the, the weight or the fitness of a person. Like you're saying, a lot of it is nutrition and you know, you're what, it's very, very important to eat properly um, when you're nursing because it is being produced from, from it's not coming from anything else, but what you put into your own body and what's not there is being taken (laughs) from what is there. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, it's not your fat supply. It's, it's a really interesting thing. And it's like, you know, it's 20, almost 2021. And it's like, there's just no manual on this. And there's no nothing like nothing is even a little concrete and there's no like, yes, there's midwives and there's lactation specialists and there's these types of things, but it's like, there's nowhere, there's no guide because each case is so different, I guess. I think maybe the thing is there are, there are different kinds of guides, right? There's like, I know, I know women who have one, you know, mother or mother-in-law who have very opposing views Mm. of you should nurse no matter how hard it is. And I'm going to be here with you and I'm going to, you know, give you every resource you have so that you can do this. But with the implicit, you know, statement that you to do anything else would be to fail, which is not true. And, you know, then another, you know, the other mother saying, like you should only formula feed. You have to be at work. This is like really suppressing you as a woman and formula is better. It's been formulated for the child, you know, like, and when we know those are coming from the women in our lives, it's how much is it also coming from the, the scientific communities and then other groups with other agendas. And in, even when there are agendas, I don't think they're implicitly like malevolent, but 
that there are ideas about what's good and these ideas can be vastly different from one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. And I, a handful of women that I have spoken with or I know um, say that, you know, they're str- they were just so stressed about breastfeeding that that ended up hindering the milk yeah. supply in itself. And it's like... Well, it's really, really a problem when there is... I mean, we already have so many mandates on mothering, right? Like, mm-hmm. you whatever it is you you're supposed to do when you're a mother, you have to keep your body looking a certain way. You have to keep working or you have to create the perfect home and you have to always be happy. I mean, there are endless mandates for a mother, which are, you know, cultural shaming bullshit mandates, I should say. Um, (laughs) Absolutely. Like if on top of that is some expectation that you have to provide all of the food, you have to make all of the food for yourself and for your family, like then it becomes a real problem. But if, if it's in a context of support where, you know, we're not just in our nuclear families where, where so much of the domestic responsibilities fall to a woman and one woman, then, you know, I think that it becomes a lot less prone to postpartum depression mm-hmm. um, and there like if there can be support I do think that it's absolutely better for for a mother baby unit to be breastfeeding but it has to be free from some of those mandates and expectations yeah because that baby blues postpartum depression it's a real thing thankfully I'm not at all familiar with it and I don't really know I know one woman who Kind of briefly, we talked about like a girlfriend of mine, but I, it sounds horrendous. Yeah. And, you know, it also varies in intensity and, you know, sometimes it can, it can be very intense. You know, people have fantasies of throwing their children out the window, drowning them in the bathtub, like really ending because every, like, in a way, there's the symbolic way that, that everything has ended, um, right. as you know it, when you have a child. And when there's no support, when there's already a pre-existing like, propensity towards depression, when the hormones are changing, um, it, it can kick in in really, really difficult ways. And women need support. I mean, there's, there's psychological psychiatric care for postpartum depression but it also has to be addressed on a cultural level the more insular our families are the more it happens Mm -hmm. yeah it's a weird um I think it goes back to a lot of things like having a therapist or having this you know doctor or however you want to look at it to speak with for so long I mean even growing up so my parents are divorced growing up we had to go see um someone and talk to them and it was like so shamed and it's like embarrassing and you don't want, but it's like, as an adult, it's almost like you, it, this is a privilege and it's like, it's a luxury to have someone you could talk to and, you know, discuss your problems with in an unbiased way, who's only looking out for your best interests. And it's just really interesting. Cause I think that there's still, I think probably an older generation and perhaps even mostly a male thing, you know, they're a little like, macho or whatever I don't need to talk about it I don't need to discuss it I don't need to figure it out I can just you know live life but it is truly such a luxury to have someone to deal with or to talk and figure things out and deal with things 
aside from your friends who, you know, friends are helpful, but they, they're your friends. So they're not always going to tell you what is in your best interest. Tell their friends the things that, that feel most secretive and most shameful too. Um, and yeah, that's why it's more than a luxury because especially in things like with postpartum depression, um, it's taking care of yourself allows you to take care of other people. And when you don't, then the things that don't get dealt with get, you know, mm-hmm. they get put onto other people and sometimes ways you don't want. Well, and raise not only that you don't want, but you don't even know it till, till it's too late or something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so I, I'm very curious of your take on, um, so I kind of briefly mentioned it, but it's like, there's this pandemic going on, mm-hmm. but the mass other pandemics that are happening, um, how do you like with your clients that you have now, or, you know, how do you, um, deal with, cause I think that this specific pandemic COVID has brought on so many more issues like yes there are so many issues happening but it has brought in so many more things um how do you like whether it's dating or i don't know whatever it is what are the things that you deal with and like or maybe the most common theme that you see um well i guess the first thing i would answer is related to covid you know, like when someone calls up and says they want to start therapy, the <laughs> thing we talk about is, you know, what, why do you want to come to therapy? What's the presenting problem? Mm-hmm. And what we know is, especially in working with the unconscious, is that the thing that presents is not, it is only the tip of the iceberg. It's not, it, it's, it's the thing that someone can have language for, but it's not really the thing there are so many things and they're embedded in the whole context of the mind um, that comes out over the course of therapy, but you only have like a very beginning way of conceptualizing that. And I think COVID is a presenting problem. It's something that we have an international language for that we, we all know now we, we still didn't even want to admit it. And, um, you know, early on when it was the problem in China that, but now we, we know it's a problem that crosses borders. It's, there's something that we cannot pretend isn't there. Right. Um, but I think that that is because there are all of these other things, like you're saying the opioid epidemic, uh, how high our suicide rates are. Um, of course, problems like cancer that are, get various levels of attention, but don't get like international attention that says everything must stop because of this. And, you know, it's sort of like this fantasy that, you know, here we are a day before the end of 2020. And so many people have this fantasy that 2020 is going to be over. COVID's going to be over climate change. Well, we don't like to talk about climate change anyway. So maybe it's never started. Like all of these things are just going to be behind us when in reality, it's another day. It just keeps going. Well, and, and if we pay attention, there's a language that here's a problem that's only the beginning of all of the problems we've, we've needed to contend with. 
um, and we have to face them more than ignore them. Right. Yeah. It's so it's, I think that new year's is such an interesting time because it's always, so now what am I going to do? And it's like, well, what have you been doing? Mm-hmm. Someday is not a day. Like mm-hmm. there's Monday through Sunday, but someday <laughs> is not one of those days. Like I'm not like, oh, guess what? I'm not coming up, coming up tomorrow because it's Tuesday. Right? Yeah. Like does it doesn't work that way. If Whatever your habits are, like, mm-hmm. you know, start it today or, you know, tomorrow if you must. But if you want to create new, you know, good new habits or whatever it is that you want to make changes, then why wait for the new year? Yeah, I mean, I think rituals like this are good for our minds where we we need a little bit like something concrete, like put it in a box, like start today because you didn't start yesterday. Yeah. And But when we, we try to use that as if the world mimics our mind, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think that there are a lot of other issues that COVID really brings up, especially, you know, and that's, that's how I've been dealing with it in my practice is that, you know, when people, especially early in the pandemic, we're, we're having to be isolated and whatever that looked like, whether that's at home with a partner that they'd rather not see 24 seven or, um, with no one around or with memories of, you know, other times when they have been forced into confinement for other traumatic reasons, that these, these things that usually you could busy yourself about and not need to pay attention to as much, like they were really hitting hard. And it's, you know, the things we don't want to do because we like to be fun and not serious, but, um, you know, there's a, there's opportunity. And I think a lot of people have, have responded to this like opportunity, another kind of, I think, psychic mandate to face the things that are there. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I wonder why there hasn't been any sort of, um, I mean, I might've missed it, but I haven't seen any sort of this type of thing in the news. Like I've seen like mental health tips or this type of stuff, but mm -hmm. not very direct um because it's like there yes there's a a a disease going around but the stress and the suicides and the alcoholism and all the other things that are a result the cause and effect of this it's just as probably more dangerous than the actual COVID itself but that's a good point I think that I think there is an increase in awareness of mental health needs like in a, in an urgent way mm-hmm. um, where I think there's, there's like in a, in a, this level of trauma, I think a lot of people turn to say like, I've noticed I'm drinking more or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, feeling more inclined to suicidal ideation, things like that. That's, that is much more about the need for some kind of management in the moment. Um, I think people who are already in therapy and are, seem to be more inclined to, to go deeper because it's not so much about the management at that moment. And I think what we're going to see is once we have a vaccine that's, um, 
you know, spread out to enough readily people. available. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, and when people begin to feel a bit safer, that these things will, you know, it won't be on such an urgent basis, but all of the things that have been brought up in the last year, whether it's a year and a half, um, will come to the surface in a way that, that like, I think people are going to be kind of ready for another kind of treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, but just sort of like holding on, gripping onto the steering wheel right now. Yeah, because everything's just so unknown. Like you can't make plans for anything, whether it's travel plans or, you know, because now there's a second strain of sorts coming from the UK or whatever this is they're saying. So it's like everything is just so unknown, whether it's like this is even this. One of my girlfriends has a little one who will be a year the first week of January. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> before... We were talking and she said, and they live in the city. They live in the building right next to us. And she said, um, yeah, we want to try to start again in September, which was this past September. They wanted to have the kids very close in age. And she has a few different health issues. Um, so they wanted to do it while, and they, I don't, who knows how true it is or whatever, but they say that, you know, this window from shortly after you have a baby, you're very fertile. So they wanted to try to, you know, get pregnant again, blah, blah, blah. And her doctor said, listen, you shouldn't because we don't know how the fetus is going to react to the COVID vaccine when it comes out. And it's crazy to think that people are putting pregnancy on hold because of this. Like, yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought of that possibility. Interesting. And the baby boom, the COVID baby boom might be followed by a COVID baby decline yeah like I'm sure because it is it's a frightening thing to think and maybe it's just because you know we're in New York or I don't know I think that also middle America like I know Michigan and I don't know if it's true or not like you hear things on the news like the rates are really high and you know the percentages are way up and it's crazy and horrible yet like my family there's like yeah we haven't we don't even see like they don't have neighbors they don't see anyone because they're living the middle of nowhere so it's like what is this just Detroit or Mm -hmm. so it's it's very interesting because I do think that there's going to be probably a huge decline in um Mm -hmm. deliveries or babies or you know whatever you want to call it I mean I think that I think that there are two tendencies in the mind in in this level of uncertainty, right? And one is to cling to certainty. It's like, we're going to find whatever way we can of dealing with this. Like I need my, you know, I'm going to have to have a routine that is more Mm -hmm. set than it ever was, or like this kind of approach of don't plan, definitely don't get pregnant right now because you can control that Uh, or things Mm -hmm things to that effect, which the other, the other mindset is to embrace the uncertainty. And I think really we need a balance of both. I mean, we, we have to plan, but I think as a culture, we are such planners and we, we have so much anxiety about not being in control, Mm -hmm. which COVID is a presenting symptom of. And we're not going to solve all of these problems by just trying to have more control. Some of it comes with saying, you know, <laughs> so it is what it is, right? It is what it is, and we 
we move accordingly or, you know, we change our jobs accordingly and we, we, we let the things happen that are going to happen anyway. Well, and I think that it goes to, um, I read it somewhere of somewhere you were writing something of like, you know, where multiple things were, it's not like we're just one thing and we should never be just one thing. We are multiple things all at once, whether it's, you know, happy and sad or whatever it is, it's, we should never be just one single thing. We should never just be scared. We should never be just, you know, right. the, like, because we truly are many things or we should be. Right. Right. I mean, and I know a lot of people who've said that this year has been for them, not, not good. And that it's without tragedy. The thing is that it's with tragedy and in the face of those tragedies, you know, losing family members, losing jobs, that there's also a way of contending with like, this is what I have and who I'm close to and what my life is about and a more a stronger sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. Like, that because of having tragedy almost, there's there's a greater sense of what's appreciated. Well, that and it almost seems like because this year has been so full of tragedy, if someone says, Oh, 2020, I can't wait for it to be over. It's been such a shit year, blah, blah, blah. And if it's like, because it's been so bad for so many, you're not allowed to be like, actually, it's been an amazing year. I had a kid and I bought a house and it's been like the best year of my life. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, you're not allowed to say that. You're Even allowed though, to say that. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but the truth is, is that's my response is normally... I'm sorry, that sucks, but I'm sure there's been something good that's come out of it because, you know, it's, are you a glass half full or glass half, whatever kind of person you are. Yeah. Well, right. Who, who mandates whether we're allowed to be excited or not and what the conditions of our excitement are. Exactly. And it's like, it's been such a weird time because if you are an excited, happy person, and you could see it in anything. It's like you're you're a bad person right now because you you're you know you have had a great year, and it's really interesting because all all I can ever do is just kind of laugh it off and be on my merrily way. Yeah. But it's like, well, what do you do with that? I mean, are you <laughs> right. if you're saying, yeah, like as long as other people are in the gutter and in the streets and having to endure more suffering for your having a great year. Right. I think that's kind of a problem, but like we are not going to fix any of the problems that we're more aware of now. Correct. If we mandate suffering on each other as the only emotion, Correct. the only experience, like you to do good, you also have to feel good. Well, and I think part of, I know this is a little like um, hippie or whatever, and I'm not so much of a hippie, Um, but I do, I really believe in vibes. So I do think that when I come across someone who's very like me and I'm like, I do hope that some of my goodness goes to them. And I do think that I spread a little bit of goodness of that. I think you absolutely do. You have such a positive, well, a positive energy, but in a way that's 
like not pop psychology positive. It's like you, you seem to really care about everybody you come into contact with and like want to see like what they're going, what's going on in their lives and to, to add to that. Truly. I think that anywhere I go or you or whoever, anywhere someone goes, they should leave it a better than they found it. So like, whether it's a little bit of good energy, a little bit of, you know, whatever it is, I wholeheartedly truly believe that that's like, that's what I live by. So mm-hmm. I, I just, I feel like if I can't do that, then what am I doing? Yeah. Um, I feel like we could talk, there's a bunch of other stuff. So we're going to have to do a part two, um, <laughs> uh, like we a hundred percent, we're going to have to do a part two, but, um, what else are you working on? What else do you have anything else to share? Do you want to mention, uh, the memoir you're writing, um, or what's your website would tell what's going on so I can include links and all this good stuff to share. Sure. Um, so I, I'll just briefly say I am working on a memoir, which is also, um, not only about me as <laughs> all, all good subjective writing, I think it's it's a collection of interviews with women uh, speaking about how we know what we know. Um, and it's something I'm so excited to to that you invited me to speak here and to see your process of having a baby and then talking to other women about women's experiences because it's very, very similar. And I think, as a woman in this like being sort of thrown into life of like what is going on is you know and there are things that yeah I know what's going on and also ways that I don't know what your experience is and what your experience is and we learn from each other and I think that's a very womanly thing um and so I I've had some experiences in interviewing um filmmakers, writers, uh, psychoanalysts, artists that um, kind of just kept having this energy that was propelling me to write um, write it together, not just about each individual experience, but how those experiences shaped me. That I then went back to writing about my own mother and um, and now, one of my children, my, one of my daughters is kind of in this preteen phase of her life. And I think, I think it's something that for me and a lot of women to talk about one thing means to talk about the other, to talk about my experience of, of having a child and breastfeeding means to talk about my mother and my birth story when I came out of her, which is also to talk about you know, my daughter and her kind of not wanting to become an adolescent and wanting to stay a child and, and then to talk about the sexual body and the fear of, you know, why do other people have so much to say about how my body should look? And then, you know, sexual experience and awakenings and my friend who owns a sex shop and our experiences together. And, and so to be able to talk about all of these things alongside one another and interwoven together Mm -hmm. has been like a really transformative process for me as a woman. And I'm really excited to, um, to hopefully within, you know, a couple years time, really share that with the rest of the world. It's an interesting thing um, 
well, there's a bunch of things there that I'm like, ding, I want to. So with having a daughter mm-hmm. and you have two daughters mm-hmm. and having a son, I'm sure it's totally a whole different thing. But for me with having a daughter, I think, and I, you know, you look and you see, and it's like, do I want to raise her that way? Do I, what do I want to, how do I want to talk to her about these subjects? Do I want to be open? Cause I'm a person who's very like, you know, my, when I was growing up, my mom would walk around the house in her sports bra and, you know, we're very not so modest, but as my mom's gotten older, she's gotten more modest and, you know, it's very covered up or whatever, but I always walk around in a sports bra and I'm just very mm-hmm. free and flowy or whatever you want to, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I think like, is that appropriate? Is this, is this something I'm allowed to do? Am I supposed to change the what I weigh? Like, what, mm-hmm. am, how do you talk about you know, sex or do you not, or do you? And it's like, the more that I've spoken with women on here, especially it's like, there should be more of an education on rather than how not to get pregnant, how you do get pregnant and how every, you know, and it's just, there's just so much that, and maybe it's because, you know, times are just so different and things are just, it's a whole new generation now, but it's, there's just so much that I think how am I going to talk to her about this? Like, you know, how do you formulate one saving grace is that we have awareness that it's not sitting down in one awkward conversation to have a sex talk, right? Right. It's called life. (laughs) It's called like you are a full woman and you are every day of your life being in that womanliness Mm -hmm. and being with your daughter in who she is as a child, who she'll be as a girl, who she will become as an adolescent and as a woman. And these are lifelong conversations. Yeah. And I mean, I, I've been thinking a lot about, yeah, as you say, there's the how not to get pregnant and how to get pregnant pieces of the conversation, but our, our sex education, our way of thinking about sex is still so backwards. Yeah. Um, I mean, just first of all, you know, what about masturbation? What about your individual body? And, you know, we're having these conversations with my kids recently. And it's like, yeah, you know, we know what intercourse is. We know what (laughs) condoms are. We know what certain aspects of, we know what abortions are, but do we know what masturbation is? Like, that's just sort of a, a, a becoming in the conversation. And, and when you think about development, like that happens first, it happens before 100%. you ever know what a condom is. And, and I think that the more we are comfortable with our own bodies as women and with our own sexual experiences, first of all, being like self-contained mm-hmm. and out of our own desire instead of as the object of someone else's desire, like these conversations are only going to improve and be more holistic. Yeah. It's such a good point. Cause it's like women generally are so looked at as sex objects. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's fine, fine, whatever. But it's like, if a woman knew how to please herself, like through masturbation, you know, she fit or a girl, a teenager, a, you know, 20 year old, whatever she figured out her own mechanics, essentially. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't feel like it would be basically to some degree how men are like, mm-hmm. I know what pleases me. Yeah. Right. So I'm not going to take less than that. Mm-hmm. Where women 
always take less than that because maybe she never orgasmed or she thought she did or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is, or she faked it and this is just what it is. But it really isn't just that because nowadays sex is, it's just, depending who you talk to, it's just sex. Like, mm-hmm. and obviously it depends on your purpose and where you are in life and whatever, mm-hmm. but it's like, as a kid, a 20 year old, a teen, or, you know, however old you are, or later mm-hmm. when you're not trying to have a kid, yeah, sex should be enjoyable. Even when you're having a kid, it should still be enjoyable. But my point right. is, is it's not about, it's not just about the guy. It should be about both the male right. and female. And it's, it is an interesting point that you bring up about how, how, how do you talk to your daughter about that? Because I never spoke with my mom about this, mm-hmm. but it is something that I, always like it's something that I am I'm probably the most open of my girlfriends or maybe not the most open but I'm very open but it's like I hear you know I hear girls saying crazy things Mm -hmm. and then like literally this is a little piece of blurb his dick was so big but I don't know if I came and I'm like you how yeah. Why yeah. does it matter how big he is? Like, it's just in the way that females talk. And it's like, it, that's fine that you want to talk that way, but you should really figure out your body and mm-hmm. what's going on with you before. I don't know. I just feel like there's so much more pleasure that could be had and enjoyment and like mm-hmm. so much more could come out of it. Literally pun intended. If, <laughs> if, if they knew how their body worked absolutely yeah I mean and it's like it's like what you're saying about it's fine to be an object of desire we all want to be desired but what's difficult is that you know how how does the individual work in relationship to the other you know do we also get to be desiring subjects who you know who have a say of what feels good to me and who I desire and and so I think if it then it it starts in the way we think about sex education even the way we think about our daughters and our son's bodies and how we're willing to talk to them about it Mm -hmm. I mean like having teenagers a boy and a girl is like (laughs) I mean they're preteens right they're not even teenagers yet and my mind is already blown and like I'm having just another phase of of like reckoning and awakening which is amazing and terrifying um that yeah there are there are certain ways that we sort of just culturally not wired to talk to girls about their bodies and i think um like as a child's mind it's so it must be so confusing to say um you're going to want to have sex but people get pregnant when they have sex and let's tell you how not to get pregnant. Then I think a child's mind, I mean, I know that it, that it looks at all of that data and says, why do people have sex? This doesn't make any sense. And so if you leave out the pleasure part of it, of course it's not going to make sense. But when we leave out the pleasure, we're leaving out the mystery. Right. And to my mind, this is where the sexual body is the maternal body that like, you know, breasts and vaginas and all of it, they're amazing and they're like crazy making and they're mysterious and they're enigmatic and they're not supposed to make sense on a certain level. And like, that's why we're having the same, the conversation about the sexual body 
it's very, it's a wild, it's, I mean, I'm sure I'll be there before I know it, this conversation with her, <laughs> but it is a, it's, it's, I mean, I get why schools don't, and I mean, it's been a long time, so I don't really remember what was said during, when I was in school, but I do think that there needs to be so much more, even if it's not at school, even if it's like, you know, a hired out external party to explain these things because not all kids have great home lives. Right. And the sad part is, is most of the kids that don't have great home lives are probably the ones who are getting pregnant and end up, you know, in a position that isn't an ideal position because, you know, they're out exploring and trying things that whatever. Yeah. No, I mean, I think in there is like why it's so dangerous to talk about desire because we're afraid as fuck of what, you know, who is allowed to do it. And is it only something that like, you know, kids who are in bad home lives are going to like, they're going to mess up their lives more. And I mean, that's one aspect of it and and why we need a lot of guidance and protection, but there's probably been a lot of prohibition on, you know, women's desire in general. Yeah. Uh, because. Well, it's still, it's to almost 2021 and it's still so, um, I don't think it's quite taboo, but it's still, you know, such a shady topic to talk about. And it's so, um, mm-hmm. it's just not discussed openly and freely like it should be because our bodies are the ones that are creating humans. Our bodies are the masterpieces. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Right, right. They're amazing. Yeah, they are. And I think that, you know, I don't think that it's too late. But mm-hmm. sadly, it's like when you have a kid, once you get to that point of being a mom, it's you're already past that. Like, it has to be addressed sooner. It has to be addressed when kids are young. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, as I said, part two, we have obviously so much more to talk about. That'll be fantastic. I mean, I'd love to share about where my practice is going when things open back up and I'll have a lot more to share with you then. And, you know, as our kids get older, <laughs> we're all, I'm sure I'll have some updates on my thinking on, um, on preteen kids. And how you are sharing things and tips and advice you suggest. Yeah, this has been really fabulous. Thanks, Ariel. Of course, my pleasure. Um, hold on. And your website real quick. Tracy. Yeah, tracysidesingersid.com. Cool. Um, and are you having people follow you on social media? Yes. Um, I'm on Instagram, uh, NYC Depth Psychologist. Okay, I'll do a little link so they can see. Um, and anything else? That's it for, for now. And I'll let you know when I have some updates. Deal.